uh, passage that we're going to look at uh, this Sunday is going to be Jonah chapter three. As you can see from the slide, uh, Jonah chapter three is the passage that we are going to be focusing on this morning. Um, I'll give you some time to get there. Jonah is not an easy book to find. It's there in the minor prophets and there's no shame in using the table of contents uh, to find it. So Jonah chapter three, verses one to 10. I'm reading from the ESV this morning in verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I ask and I pray, God, that you will be with us, Lord, this morning. Help us to realize right now today, God, that you are the one who is sovereign over what you desire for us to do and how we are to serve you, God. You are sovereign on whom you choose to share your love with every day. And so I pray, God, that as we learn from the life of Jonah and by what he has done and by what he has gone through, God, I pray, Lord, that we would learn as followers of you to submit, Lord, to what you desire so that we too, as you work, may grow spiritually in our love and our trust in you. In Jesus' name I do pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Today, we are obviously looking at Jonah chapter three. And as we've been going through this book, and as I've been thinking about Jonah himself, I began to realize how much of his life is like my own. When I think about Jonah, I see someone who has this expectation, who has this intentionality and and wants things to be a certain way. You know, when I look at my life, I see the same similar characteristics. 
just like Jonah. I want things to be done a certain way. I'm I'm kind of independent minded and and a little bit arrogant and and actually maybe a really arrogant and and really mindful in the way I want things to be done, how things I want to progress, how fa- how fast and how quickly things are supposed to change. And you kind of have to remember a little bit about Jonah's life. He's coming from a nation who has not had the best of relationships with the Assyrian Empire. He's been there to not only hear the stories, but have probably have seen personally the brutality of this nation of Assyria. He's looked upon Assyria and Nineveh included as a place of paganism, a place of great evil and vileness. And and there's that anger that must be within Jonah's life when he thinks about Assyria and everything that that entails. Probably has memories of, of people being hurt in Israel by the hands of the Assyrians. And so in his mind, there's a great distrust. There's great pain between him and the nation that God had already called him to share with. You know, in the same way, we all have those types of feelings in our lives. When we want things to be a certain way or when we want things to be fair, or when we want things to be just, or when we want people to get what they deserve. The same way Jonah has these private personal feelings boiling up inside of him. But as we learn from this particular chapter today, that it would do well for both Jonah and ourselves to submit to the sovereignty of God in our lives. You see, if there is one thing that really stood out to me in this passage today, it is that the sovereignty, because God is sovereign, he has authority and he is in control. He can choose to share his love to whomever he desires, to whomever he wishes. And we are going to see that in this passage today in Jonah chapter three. When I look at this chapter, I I realize that there are three distinct parts. The first part of this uh, chapter deals with the idea that God is sovereign over our service and what we do. And we see this in the way that Jonah reluctantly does exactly what God commands him to do. And we see this in verse one to the first part of verse three. Take a look at your Bibles here in Jonah chapter three, verse one. At the very beginning of this passage, the word of the Lord goes to Jonah and it says it goes to him a second time. And this is actually really important for an introduction to the passage because it's in this statement that it's almost as if God in his mercy, in his patience, and in his forgiveness has already started Jonah and given him a second chance. It's almost as if everything that Jonah did in chapter one and chapter two, it's almost like those things never happened. 
And Jonah gets a fresh start, a second start to the command that he already received in chapter one. But this time, there's a little bit of a nuance here that I want to highlight as we go into verse two. The command is the same, go to Nineveh. But then he calls this city a great city. And this is actually kind of troubling with the introduction I already gave you. Jonah already has a bunch of personal issues with Assyria as an empire. He knows that Nineveh, which is in Assyria, is not a friendly place. It's an evil and pagan place with great brutality and, and the stories that caused a lot of nations to fear Assyria in the first place are coming up. And so there's a lot of strangeness for God to call it a great city. But when we look at chapter four, especially at verse 11, we find that Nineveh was a city that was very well populated. It says in verse 11 of chapter four that there was 120,000 people in Nineveh. And what seems to be suggested in verse two of chapter three is that God cares about this city. God is not going to leave this city unattended, and he is going to share his love and mercy with this city. But Jonah may not even realize that yet. In this command in verse two, he says, go to that great city and call out. And, and here's the nuance that we get with this second iteration of the commandment. Speak against it exactly the message that I tell you. We're going to later on find out what that message is in the second section. But the point is this, is that God does not want Jonah in one way or another to deviate at all from the message that he wants to share with Nineveh, that great city in Assyria. And so this message that he is supposed to give is supposed to be given with the exact clarity. And as we find in verse three, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Now, it's kind of vague. It lacks detail. There's a lot of detail in this chapter, but this verse at the beginning of verse three is not very enlightening. How did Jonah go to Nineveh? Did he want to go in the first place? Was he reluctant to go? Was he somebody that got this second chance and thought to himself, that's great. I get to do this again. And he got up on his feet and he rushed to Nineveh like a good little boy. Reality is, is that when we look at chapter four, there's probably a good suggestion in this passage to suggest that he did not go with the desire to love the Assyrian empire. He didn't go because he wanted to. He went because he had to. You see, the lesson that I think he learned from chapter one and chapter two is that you can't argue with God. Because God is sovereign over our service, there's no way that, that Jonah knows that he can change God's mind in the commands that he gives to his life. And so Jonah knows because he can't fight with God and his commandments, the best thing he can do is submit 
and to just go about and do the very thing he is told to do. But it kind of asks the question and kind of wonders, makes you wonder, does God really want anybody in their service to do a half-hearted effort? You see, when God wants us to obey, it's not just in the actions. It's not just in the outward doing of what you're supposed to do. Your attitude needs to be right as well. And I'm not convinced that Jonah has that right heart when it comes to chapter four, and we'll get there next week. But the thing is this, is that when we don't have the right attitude, when we do externally, whatever it is that God is commanding us to do, we forego the opportunity to actually spiritually benefit from that obedient service that he is commanding us to. You see, God wants Jonah to grow spiritually. God wants Jonah to not only experience, but share his love to Nineveh. And that is how Jonah is going to grow by getting to know what God is like. But here's the thing. When Jonah does what he does with reluctance, half-heartedness, or just to get the job done because he can't argue with God, he doesn't benefit spiritually from this service. And so when we move into the second section, it's almost like Jonah kind of fades away or starts to fade away from the chapter three. We go to the second section of this story, and this is the longest section. We're going to spend most of our time here today on this second section from the middle of verse three all the way down to the end of verse that we learn that God is sovereign over the mercy that he shares. God is sovereign with the mercy that he shares. And, and this is really important for us to understand because when we read this, this section, we see how quickly, how speedily Nineveh responds to the message that God gives to them, how dramatically they repent from their own wickedness. It's absolutely, <laughs> it's exciting to watch what happens in this section. And so at the middle of verse three, it starts off by this. It says, now Nineveh was a three days journey in breadth. Now we kind of need to explain what that means because it's significant in the next couple of verses. When we say that Nineveh is a three days journey in breadth, a lot of people think that it takes three, three days possibly to go across Nineveh because it's such a large city of population. And that might be the case. But in history of the Assyrian Empire, there are cities that are known to be three-day cities. And what do we mean by that? Well, when an emissary or a messenger or a foreign representative like Jonah being a prophet from another nation comes into a city like Nineveh, all the emissaries and messengers know that Nineveh is a three-day location, meaning that as the messenger arrives, like the prophet Jonah, he would have to check at the gate, and then he would have to go to a, a a set appropriate location where he would share his message. And because he's a foreigner, he's not allowed to stay within the city. And so he's supposed to check back 
at the same gate and then leave the boundaries of the city. And then the second day, he's supposed to check back in, go to a new location and then check out. And on the third day, again, he's supposed to check in, go to a brand new location, give his message and then leave. And when we say that Nineveh is a three day city, what we're saying essentially is that many, maybe a messenger and emissary would know in order to sufficiently deliver the message that they are to share, it's going to take three days in three locations to sufficiently let the population know the message. And so the reason that's so important is because everything that we see here in this chapter starts on that first day. Jonah doesn't even get to the second day or the third day of making his message known. And that's exactly what we see in verse four. In verse four, Jonah begins to go to the city only in that first day's journey. And then he delivers his message from God exactly and precisely the way that God wants it. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, a lot of people will look at that sentence and they'll go like, okay, Nineveh's got 40 days to repent. Okay. It seems like I've read the book. I know what that means. Nineveh is going to be overthrown in 40 days if it doesn't turn to God. Now, we know that because we know God and we've read the book already and we, we understand that's what God meant. But here's the thing. If you're hearing this sentence for the very first time, there is a ton of ambiguity. It's almost like God intended for that ambiguity to be there. Even in its precision of the sentence, it's almost like God is giving them this warning and then he's leaving it there and he's waiting to see what Nineveh's going to do to respond. Sure enough, there's a lot of ambiguity that we can pick apart. First of all, number one, 40 days. Well, what do you mean by 40 days? Is there a chance for mercy? Is there a chance for forgiveness? Is, is, that, is there a chance to change? the future outcome of what this sentence seems to say, there, there seems to be a, a wonder, okay, 40 days for what? And is it a grand total of 40 days starting when? The next question is Nineveh. Are you, are you talking about the district, the area around Nineveh, or are you only talking about the city itself, the metropolitan area? And then you have the word overthrown. Well, what do you mean by overthrown? Are you talking about an earthquake that will come and toss everything up like a natural disaster? Are you talking about an en enemy at the gates that's going to come in and destroy everybody and everything? Or are you talking about the leadership that will be overthrown, that just the political uh, hierarchy and the upper class people are just going to be replaced while the normal everyday citizen is going to be left unchanged? And so there's a lot of intended ambiguity in verse four with what God is trying to say. But even in the midst of that ambiguity and without a Q&A session that's known about in this passage, the people, get this, remarkably respond with repentance. Even in the vagueness of the warning, even in the simplicity of that sentence, the people respond remarkably. The people in verse five 
believe God. Now, all to be fair, Assyrian is known to be a polytheistic empire. They have a bunch, a pantheon of different gods. And so it might be that the people finally take the God of Israel seriously. But here's the thing. When we see the word believe here, as we look down later in the chapter, it's that they spread the news. It's not like, okay, 40 days, we're going to get destroyed. No, it's like they believe the warning that Jonah is giving. And then they say to themselves, I need everybody to know this truth. I'm not just going to sit here and accept this fact. I'm going to take this, this message and I'm going to pass it on to every single person I can find. And this one sentence in one day spreads like wildfire all over Assyria, specifically Nineveh. And so here's the thing. People, they start changing. They, 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 instantly call a fast. And this is without any rulership at this point. They initiate voluntarily to go on this fast. They put on sackcloth and then everybody gets involved. It's not just the poor people or, or the great people that have a lot of time to think about things. It's, it's everybody, both poor and rich. They, they go to respond to just this one sentence that Jonah gives in his first day. And the word spreads like wildfire and, and they pass along this news. And sure enough, the message reaches the king. And the king of Nineveh hears this sentence that Jonah gave. And he gets off his throne, a position of prestige and authority and power. He walks down from his pulpit and then he removes his robe and he puts on sackcloth as if it was like a, like a potato sack. And he sits in the ashes and you can just imagine the demonstration of that humbleness of a great king. You know, you can imagine the pastors in our church hearing a word of repentance and that sin that God opens their eyes to just fill with that overwhelming sense that they need to change. And they take off their suits and they put on sackcloth and they sit on the floor next to the dirt and the ashes of a campfire and they just weep. You can imagine the president of the United States coming down from his podium, taking off his suit and putting on sackcloth and sitting in the ashes because some pastor somewhere in the country preached a sermon of repentance and he sits on the floor greatly moved by what was said. But it's not just posturing. It's not just taking a Bible and standing in front of a church. It's not just dressing up and leaning on one knee. He takes action. He doesn't just pose. He moves. He, he, he goes and sets a proclamation. He sets a decree. And the speed of which he responds is amazing. 
He says in, in, in the middle of verse seven, by decree and the king of his nobles, neither man nor beast, everyone needs to get in on this, whether you're livestock or you're human. It makes no difference. Everyone must take this seriously. Let them not feed or drink water. This is, this is like an ultimate three-day fast. You know, some people think that the king is calling for 40 days of not drinking water. I don't think that's accurate. I think the Assyrian Empire, when they're being moved like this, they're calling themselves to three days without eating or drinking any water. And so for three days, they fast and they respond. They wear sackcloth. And they are to call in verse eight to the mighty God. And everyone, I want you to see this, everyone is supposed to turn from their evil ways. This is really powerful because the king has no ability to truly enforce this proclamation. This decree that he gives, he doesn't have the military in Nineveh to make sure that every single citizen is making sure that they're not eating and they're not drinking water. He can't make sure that every single person is wearing sackcloth. He can't absolutely monitor every person crying out mightily to God. But he, he can't monitor everyone, making sure that every single person is turning from their evil ways. But in verse five, he doesn't have to. Everyone is taking Jonah seriously. All the people are responding. And I want you to imagine this. When it comes down to verse, middle of verse seven, the decree is from the king and his nobles. We need to pick on this a little bit here because I think it's going to give us a little perspective on maybe what's going on in Nineveh during this time. Now, a lot of people were confused when they read verse seven, when it says that the decree and the proclamation came from the king and his nobles. And the reason that's complicated is because in Assyrian history, when a king makes a decree and a proclamation, that's the only authority that is all, like generally needed. When a king says, this is what I believe, everyone needs to do it. And there's no need to add the authority of the nobles to any proclamation that an Assyrian king would give. So why is it that the nobles are mentioned in verse seven? That's the really big question. Now, some people believe, and this is interesting, that, that the king wants to show solidarity to this proclamation. He wants to show to all the people that both he and his nobles together are telling the people, this is what you need to do. Now, it's almost as if you can imagine this right now. I know it's impossible to imagine, but just think about it for a second. Imagine if the Republicans and the Democrats in this country come together as one with Kamala Harris and Joe Biden leading the charge and together all of them say, this is what we need to do. 
it might be that the Assyrian king of Nineveh wants to show solidarity to his subjects and citizens. But I think something else is happening. And obviously, we don't know either way how to take it, but this is what I think explains the speed of their response. There's a good chance because we don't see proclamations, including nobles as subjects of authority for declarations. It could be that the king doesn't have the political power at this time in history to make this type of proclamation stick. Why would that be the case? Maybe there's political unrest. Maybe there's, you know, riots in the streets. Maybe there's an opposing force that's making the citizens of Nineveh have a vote of no confidence against their king. Maybe there's been a natural disaster like an earthquake or a flood. Maybe there's been a superstitious solar eclipse. Maybe there's been a famine. Maybe there's been COVID-19 in Nineveh. Maybe there's been a virus that's been spreading. Maybe there's been so so much chaos in the streets and destruction. Maybe there's been factions in Nineveh warring against each other, being opposing each other, not liking each other, not talking with each other, but arguing with each other. Maybe there's been so much discontent in Nineveh that after all this commotion and chaos in the nation, some prophet from a foreign country comes in through Jonah and says, 40 days. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. You see where we're going with this? There might have been so much things, terrible things happening possibly in Nineveh, where in which there has been so much chaos, confusion and fear and uncertainty that finally when a voice comes in, and says, you will be overthrown. Everybody looks at Jonah and says, that's it. That's why we're in so much chaos. That's why we're in so much pain. That's why there's so much evil in the land. It's because of our unrighteousness. It's because of our unholiness. God, this God, this God of Israel is coming to judge us for our evil ways. There's a very good chance to suggest that with all the chaos that's been happening in Nineveh, that God was prepping the hearts of those in Assyria, in Nineveh, to respond to a message of repentance and a turning of evil from evil. And it's almost like the king says, this is the message we've been waiting for. This is why all these terrible things possibly have been happening in Nineveh. Jonah has given us the answer, the reason for all our troubles. And he calls for repentance. And all the people respond because all the people have been suffering. And then the king, man, this is incredible. The king says, who knows? God may turn 
and relents and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I I want you to compare this. I want you to compare this to Israel. When all it took for Nineveh was to hear one message in one day from one sentence from one prophet and the whole city turned. But then you hear the story of Israel and Judah in the book of Jeremiah, prophet after prophet, message after message, warning after warning, message, sermon, God's word always given to them, showering with truth, and yet they don't respond. They don't turn from their evil ways. Finally, Babylonians come in and wipe out Judah and exile them as a punishment, as a judgment hand of God. Imagine the difference between Assyria responding in Nineveh compared to Israel, God's own people. And then think about us. Brothers and sisters, I am absolutely convinced that repentance is a work of God in our lives. That when when we turn to God and when we respond, we're responding because he's been working in our lives. There are times when you'll give a message and so many people will turn to Christ and you'll think to yourself, wait a minute, I gave this message already at another place or at another church or even in my own home church, and nobody seemed to care. Nobody seemed to notice. Nobody seemed to respond. And then you take the same exact message. I've, I've seen this in my life. You take this exact same message and you take it to another group of people and they respond. It's not my rhetoric. It's not the way you said it. It's not how much thought you put into it. It was God's work of repentance that preceded your message, that softened the heart and tilled the soil so that when Jonah finally got around to show up, everybody responded because they were ready to do so. God is sovereign over his mercy. And when he shares his mercy and forgiveness and gives us a chance, to repent. We are lending ourselves into the hands of God, but we've got to give ourselves completely. Everything in Nineveh went in on this. From the rich to the poor, from the livestock to the human, everybody turned to God. Everybody wore sackcloth. Everybody fasted. In the same way, you and I, we can hold nothing back. And as we respond We submit to the sovereignty of God's mercy. You know, some people will look at verses, uh, verse three to verse nine, and they'll say to themselves, well, the king of Nineveh was kind of manipulating the God of Israel to to get them off the hook. But as you look at verse nine, he doesn't even know if it's going to work. But you know what? God sets the stipulation for repentance. He makes the terms and he sets the rules. We see this actually in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 to 10. And this is important when it relates to our message that we're looking at today, this morning. 
Verse 7 of Jeremiah chapter 18 says this. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intend to do to it. God is sovereign over his mercy. He decides when nations rise and fall. He decides if kingdoms will collapse. Businesses, churches, all are subject to the mercy of God's sovereignty. And you know, the king does this. But as we see in our final section in verse 10, God in his sovereignty, because he is sovereign, chooses to share his love with Nineveh because they have repented. He relents from the disaster that he intended to do to it. And you know, the thing about this is, is that as he shares his love upon Nineveh in verse 10, it is at the horror of Jonah to watch. Let's look at verse 10. God saw. And, and that's really cool because God always watches. He knows everything. There's nothing that goes on in this world that God does not know about. But what did he see? Did he see the sackcloth? Did he see the, um, the fasting? Uh, did he see the cries? He saw how they turned from their evil ways. That is at the heart of repentance how they turned from their disobedience, how they turned from their sin, how they wanted to delight in the God of Israel, though they knew probably very little about this God. God was preparing their hearts to respond. God relented when he saw this. He relented from the disaster that he said that he would do to it. And he did not. Brothers and sisters, God's love isn't fair in terms of his grace, in terms of his mercy. It's justified by Jesus Christ going on the cross to take the penalty for our sins. And because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which we are in today, it justifies the unfairness of God's grace. You know, when I think about the book of Jonah, and then I think about the story of the prodigal son, I think about the story of the prodigal son like it's Jonah 2.0. 
because I think that there's a ton of similarities between Jonah and the prodigal son story. You guys know the story of the prodigal son. There was a younger son, a younger brother that went to the father and said, I want my share of the inheritance. It's as if he's going to his father and saying to him, I want you to be dead so I can receive the money, the assets that I am supposed to get after you die. The father, incredibly, you know, restructures his household, sells what he needs to sell and actually gives his younger son a third of all the inheritance. And that's what a younger son would get is one third of everything that the father possessed. And that younger son goes and takes and squanders all those inheritance, all the money, everything, everything, all the riches, he wastes it all. And when he's in the muck and when he's in that mire, he looks at his situation and he says, it would be better for me to be in my father's house. It would be better for me to be a slave and a servant for him rather than to be in the situation that I'm in. So he goes back. He goes back to, he repents, he turns. He goes back to his father, seeking to be a servant, seeking to be a slave. And the father sees the one who was lost is now found and coming back. And the father runs, you know the story, and embraces his younger son. And while the son is expecting to be hired as a slave, the father surprises the son and reinstates him as a true child of the family, welcomes him back, embraces him, brings him into the house, kills a fattened calf, has a huge celebration of grace and mercy and love. All the while, the older brother is watching everything that's happening and he's filled with anger inside. He goes to his father, how is it that I've been so faithful for you, doing everything you've asked, and never once did you celebrate like this for me? And, you know, there's a little bit of interesting thing about this story when you look at the detail of the culture is that because the father had reinstated that younger brother, that means another third of the inheritance now goes to that younger brother, which you know, when when first of all, when the prodigal son left, the older brother was like, this is bad. This is shameful. But at least I still have my two thirds of the inheritance. But when the younger brother comes back and gets reinstated, another chunk of the older brother's inheritance now goes to the one who was lost but is now found. And so you can think in the mind of this older brother, this does not seem right. This doesn't seem fair. How is it that you could share your love and mercy so freely to this prodigal son? You know, I can imagine Jonah is saying exactly the same thing about Assyria. How is it that God could take this wicked, evil, terrible, unlikable, a, a group of people that he hates and show mercy to them and love. That is because God's mercy is sovereignly controlled by God. And by God's grace, 
that is who he is. God shares his greatest demonstration of love in the book of Jonah by showering forgiveness and mercy to the people that Jonah doesn't like. To the people that you don't like. For the people I don't like. God loves them more than I realize. And when he shows me in front of my eyes as he showers them with love, even when I don't think it's right, even when I think it's not fair, that is a demonstration of his grace, his mercy, his character. And that is the same love he showed me at the cross. Brothers and sisters, I want to close with a few thoughts that came to my mind. That while I was working on this message, these ideas came to my mind. And and though I don't have time to get into super detail, if you think these things, I, I think chapter three does a good job in addressing these types of concerns. I hear these concerns from adults and youth. First one is this. I don't think I can be used by God. I can understand if you were to say something like this, if you were talking about being a leader or an elder of a church. I can understand that. It's a huge responsibility, including uh, deaconship and Sunday school teaching. But you need to understand, friend, that God, because he's sovereign over our service, he can use whomever he desires. God can take a wicked nation like Babylon and turn it into the hand of judgment against Jerusalem and Judah. God can take a reluctant prophet like Jonah and turn entire Nineveh to repent. God can take a murderer like Moses, which was full of excuses, mind you, and make him turn a whole, na- uh, a whole people group out of the empire of Egypt. God can take uh, an adulterer like David. God can use a donkey. God, Jesus even said that if my message doesn't, the rocks would cry out. God can use anyone. The challenge for you this morning is will you submit to serving him alone in however way he wishes for you to do so? Jonah learns, as well as we need to learn, that we cannot argue with the commandments of God. He's going to come after us every single time we push him away. Because in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that God, um, God disciplines the ones he loves. So even when Jonah goes 180 degrees in the wrong direction, God still comes after him, brings him back, and then gives him a second chance. So will he also do that with you until you submit to his commands for your life. God can use anyone. Number two, if God is sovereign, then why do I need to do anything? Right? Like if God is sovereign over all things that happen in the world, why do I need to participate? 
you know, we don't have time to get into predestination and all that, but I'm going to tell you this. God could do everything without you. He, he could make things happen. He'd do a better job probably, and he'd do it quicker for that fact. But the thing is, is that God wants you to participate. He wants you to experience his love for yourself so that you can share it with others. He wants you to serve him. He wants you to grow spiritually when you, not reluctantly, but actually want to do what he tells you to do. He wants you to see the journey. And yes, he sort of understands that it's going to take more work on his part. He understands it's going to take more time by getting you involved. But that's what he's like. He wants you to be part of his plan that he predestined long before you were born. Finally, this is a statement I've heard myself believe, and um, I hear this a lot, especially these days. I hope they get what they deserve. You know, I think Jonah, when in uh, uh, chapter three, verses one to three, when he reluctantly does what God tells him to say, Jonah might be thinking in his mind, you know, I really don't think they're going to repent. I'll do whatever you tell me to do, God, but I, I pessimistically, I really don't think it's going to work. I mean, they're so horrible. They're so wicked. They're so terrible. There's no way, God, that this is going to fly. And to the horror of Jonah, it works. And what seems to be so unfair as a national, Jonah being uh, coming from the nation of Israel, watching such a terrible nation that did them so much wrong turn to God in repentance from their evil ways? Brothers and sisters, when we say, I hope they get what they deserve, what if we got what we deserve? What, we, what if, because God sees all, What if he poured out on you and me everything that we were justly supposed to be punished for? You know, brothers and sisters, I love reading the Puritans. Some of you guys know I quote um, the, the sermons of Charles Spurgeon and so many other authors that have really benefited from the Puritans. And, and I had a really messed up view of them in high school because all we talked about was how they burned people and stuff like that. But when I actually got around to reading their writings and and listening to their sermons uh, on Audible and so forth, I began to think to myself, man, these guys really care about God's holiness. These guys really care about purity. These people really care about righteousness. But even as they cared about all these things as Puritans, They had a very healthy understanding of their sinfulness. They had a very healthy understanding of their own wickedness. And because they were so well, deeply understanding their depravity, they understood the the value of the mercy and the grace of God. They understood how refreshing it is to be saved. And how precious it is to know that Jesus took our punishment on the cross. 
And that motivated them to preach and to do God's work because they began to understand God's love, not just the love that he shares on our lives, but the love that he shares even with the people that we don't like, even with the people that hurt us, even with the people that persecute you, even with the people that you just want to stay away from. God's love powerfully extends to them too. I I truly pray this this Sunday morning that this is the kind of message of God's love, that he is sovereign over his mercy and he's sovereign over our service, that it will lead us to repent. That in this nation of chaos, that we would turn, we would start to turn from our evil ways. I pray that we would heed the message of God in Jonah chapter three today. Dear Lord, I wanna thank you for this time, God, that you have given me to share your word. I thank you for this chapter. I've really enjoyed this story. I I enjoy how you work and I've seen you work, Lord, in the hearts and minds of people long before I ever share a message, long before I even know their name, God, even before they know that you're working on them, God, it is that message that opens up our eyes when we first became a believer and we look back at all the decades we weren't Christians and we realize in that moment how long you've been walking by our side. Help us not to forget this morning, that this love goes to anyone, everyone, especially the people we don't like. Why? Because we regularly need to be reminded of the nature and the character of your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.